This is the documentary on one from RTE in Ireland. A quick note to say the documentary on one is now available for sponsorship, both on radio and podcast. If you're interested, email documentaries at rte.ie for more information. And so to today's story, which involves a young woman and one of the longest and toughest dog sled races on the planet, the famous Lopet, narrated by Don Loherlihy, this is The Long Run. In January every year, in a tiny frozen town in rural Norway, the dark depths of winter are briefly illuminated by a race. 139, it's a sled race. Sleds pulled by 12 dogs, and it starts in a place called Rorosh. The bright lights hot chocolate and warm glug at the start line belie what's about to confront these competitors, both canine and human. Because when they've raced up the single main street of this tiny hamlet, through the applause and the high spirits, they turn right into the snowbound countryside. And, as the noise of the crowd gradually disappears, each musher and their twelve dogs face into an horrendous ordeal. Uh, this is not about the power. This is about mental strength. They race day and night through a desolate tundra in conditions that can kill, sometimes 30 degrees below. Grabbing rest only when they're in a state of near collapse, often dogs and humans huddling together in makeshift tents to share body heat. And it goes on for 650 kilometres. It's called the Feyman Lopet, and it's one of the most arduous challenges in all of sport. Exhausted, hungry, sleep deprivations, all that is coming straight in your face with high velocity. Last year, a 35-year-old woman turns up at the start line with her 12 dogs. She's five foot one and bespectacled. She's the London-born daughter of farmers from County Limerick and is racing under the Irish flag. If I'd known that it was actually minus 27, I would have done some slightly different things. Oh. Her name is Helen Milan. Five days before the biggest challenge of Helen's life begins, I arrive at her new home in Schlussfors in Sweden. It's February 2019, and it's still in the depths of winter up here, where night begins at three in the afternoon and doesn't end again until nine the next morning. So you're here for uh, Helen? Yes. Yeah. There's snow, lots of snow, as far as the eye can see. Helen's camp is a farm in this tiny townland. We struggle to find it, but eventually spot the lights of the farmhouse amidst eight-foot-high piles of snow. I'm here to record Helen's final preparations for the famed Lopet race and follow her through it, whether that race beats her and she drops out, or worse, or she makes it to the finish line, becoming the first Irish competitor ever to finish a professional dog sled race. Only time will tell. We haven't seen Helen in the flesh yet, so we've only got a grainy Skype image to go on, but suddenly a small, furiously energetic woman passes us, and it's obvious who it is. Don't worry, I'm going to go in. <laughs> The camp is the home of Helen's boss, 
Peter Carlson. This is Liam and Donald. Yeah, we said hello. Oh, right. yeah, I saw them. Can you shut the door behind you, please? Peter is a legend of sled racing. He's won the famed Lopet, the third longest race in the world. He's also done the Finnmark race, the second longest. He won that too. Helen is here as his apprentice and her job is to train and care for Petter's B team. Um, so there, there's two teams running this race now. There's Petter with his A team and like I kind of work for him. I'm running dogs for him that could potentially be in his A team. So my team is like a reserve team for his team. It's only a few days before the famine starts. Helen and Petter are in a warm shed at the back of the farmhouse. Every dog is being checked by the local vet. Annette is our local vet and she's checking every dog that could run the race to make sure that they're cleared and, like, all right to run. She had a, she had a slight um, a heart murmur, resting heart, but now after she ran and after exercise, I can't hear it anymore. These dogs are not what you might expect a husky to look like. They're lean and athletic and much smaller than I expected. More like a sheepdog than the grey and white blocky image synonymous with the breed. Yeah, no, in sporting dogs, that is sometimes they have, um, they, they can have a, a slight heart murmur in the resting heart. Huskies are literally born to run, and they certainly can, longer and harder than any animal in the world. They can burn up to 12,000 calories a day. They have the best stamina of any living being on the planet, animal or human. They come from Siberia or Alaska normally, and in dog mushing circles, they can sell for anything up to $30,000. But uh, that should go away after exercise, so that's not unnormal. Um, but, um, yeah, have, have an eye on her again, but I'm, I'm not really worried about it. But the one thing you can't measure in any husky is their passion and their desire. And that's what forms a team. Dog sledding is a way of life in the Arctic Circle, and the vast amount of competitors in the famed Lopet have been born into dog sledding. It was never really a choice for them. The human being who drives the pack of dogs standing, not sitting, on the sled is called a musher. And to be a top musher in this part of the world is to take on demigod status. So for someone from outside that cadre to take up dog sledding at 30 and then look to compete in one of the world's most difficult races, well, it's like a Norwegian or a Swede coming here, taking up hurling at 30 and expecting to play in an All-Ireland final a few years later. In short, it just doesn't happen. Helen is an absolute exception to the rule in the dog sledding world. And, at the famed Lopet, she'll be the only competitor from a country where dog sledding isn't a central part of the culture. So how, you may well ask, does a film executive who grew up in an Irish family in London end up shoveling snow and mushing dogs on a farm in Sweden? Yeah, around five years ago. So I, um... I went on holiday to Tromsø, Northern Norway. The north has always kind of fascinated me in terms of, like, like just visually and stuff. It seems like a place, a magical place, you know. And me and my friend walked into the tourist office and we saw this thing of, like, northern lights and dog sledding. And we were like, oh, dog sledding, jokes, like dogs pulling you along on a sled. That sounds, like, ridiculous. Let's give it a go. So we did, like, an hour tour and I just thought it was amazing. It really, like, spoke to me somewhere. It just it just seemed just so, so great. So I kind of filed it away on, like, Moss Do Again. 
And I kind of forgot about it. It was in the back of my mind, obviously, but that was it. Because I was a freelancer in, in film in London. I was working for like quite a big distributor there called E1 and uh, doing some other stuff. I made like a, a documentary and a short and all this sort of stuff, like all in the space of like one year. And it was hectic. It was like really, really crazy. And I kind of got to the end of it and I was a bit like wiped out, actually. I think I had taken on too many things and I was just like, I, I had just got to the point where I needed like a break so I thought it would be really nice to do something kind of physical for like three months get away from it all and so on a whim I emailed the people that I had done the tour with a year before and I was like oh do you need any workers for the winter I don't have any experience really but my dad's like a farmer so I used to like visit farms so I've got some idea and uh, it turned out that they were completely desperate so they uh, they just lost all their stuff and so they took on this person that had no godly business being there at all. So two weeks after I'd sent that email, I was up in Tromso. But then I never left. From Norway, I went to Alaska. From Alaska, I tried to go to Canada, then I got deported and came back to Norway. And then I came here, and I've been here. This is my third season here now. Although Helen describes herself as being desk-bound before this transformation in her life... Animals, hard work and the outdoors are in her blood. Her parents are Irish, from County Limerick and County Cavan. It's why she's racing Feymond under the Irish flag. Her father grew up on a farm which Helen spent long holidays on in her childhood. While she was born in London, Helen identifies as Irish, is an Irish citizen with an Irish passport. She has more Limerick farmer in her than she does Londoner. Her parents moved to London in the late 70s and opened a pub which Helen grew up in. Yeah, so I grew up in a pub, the Box Street Pub. It's a, a big old pub in North London. It's in the middle of, well, it used to be at that time, like Irish community as well, actually. It's like really near, um, there's like a church and various schools and stuff like that that when I was younger growing up formed quite a kind of community that I think in some small ways like centred on the Box Street at a certain time. It was wicked growing up in a pub. It was uh, it was a really big uh, it was a really big place, and we had like the run of it. So it was kind of like a, I don't know. It allowed us to have a lot of cool adventures and like make up a lot of crazy stories when we were kids. Far from Helen's new home here near the Arctic Circle in the north of Sweden, her parents Leo and Caroline Milan still live and work in the Box Tree Pub back in the north of London. They were as surprised as anyone that their 35-year-old daughter has chosen a life of dog sledding. Truthfully, I would never have believed that Helen would be where she is because London was the centre of Helen's universe and uh, she always, you know, there was always something going on, something exciting for Helen. So if somebody had asked me if Helen was to leave London where would I see her going? Well, I'd, I'd probably have to say someplace like New York. I would never have believed that Helen would go and do and be where she is. She sort of seemed to make her mind up very quickly. It was, you know, it was like one minute Helen's, you know, working in in a production company in London. The next thing, well, I'm not, I'm moving, I'm going, you know. And it, she didn't tell us, it was only uh, maybe... Last year where she said, this is what I'm going to do. This is, you know, this is what I want. I wouldn't be surprised if it was something to do with the fact that it was maybe so expensive to live in London. You had to spend um, so much time trying to earn money to pay rent and all that. And she went out there and seen that um, 
that uh, life can be easier, you know. Maybe we just want to leave the rat race. I'm sure she'll get back into it again. But I still think that she's this phase, just taking longer than normal. Yeah, I think so. I think that she's back. She'll be back here. Throughout her childhood, Helen's dad brought her back to the family farm in County Limerick. She loved the freedom, but her father couldn't have imagined a life ahead for his daughter where she'd spend hours and days alone in an Arctic tundra, sledding dogs through some of the most dangerous terrain in the world. In those days, you'd think she wouldn't, she'd be, she wouldn't survive for a half an hour out in the, in the wilderness, and now she's able to. You know, there's even, there's even bears. Like, if she was in Norway, and there was uh, polar bears there, I think, and then I, you know, I told her, I tried to keep telling her they're not, they're not ones that you tap and say they're cuddly and all that, because polar bear will kill you, like, and uh, she didn't seem to worry her. I mean, I'm, I'm from the country and I would be afraid of a polar bear. Well, that's just the way it, 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 her, her, um, the road that she's decided to, to go down. I think her brother and sister are quite amazed by her, you know. And she's very, you know, she's decided you won't persuade. It's like to say we, we could sit down and have that chat and maybe we'll have you thought. You don't have that conversation with Helen. So Helen is very, when Helen makes up her mind about something that she's going to do, then that's what she's going to do. So there wouldn't be any way of us sitting down with a coffee or over dinner and sort of trying to tell her all the negatives because you just won't do that with Helen. Once Helen's decided and Helen will, well, she'll come up with all the positives anyway, as she sees it. But um, it's, it's, it'll be what Helen wants. Three days before the race, it's 6am, 17 degrees below zero. I always try and greet the dogs in my team in the morning by name and it's really good for their esteem in a way or self-esteem or something. They, they like to hear their names, they enjoy it. It's clear that this is a working farm. Cattle are ruminating at one end of a field while at the other there are maybe 90 dogs in big kennels, part of them sheltered, part of them open air where we are now. Thank you, Ara. And while I'm doing this, I'm like keeping an eye on like who's drinking and who's not. It's really important to know. So Matrix is not drinking. Um, and he didn't quite finish his dinner either. Hi okay. Hi Matrix. Randy. Randy is funny. If you say her name a lot of times, she gets really overexcited and starts smiling like she'll bears her teeth. Just getting the snow out of the bowl here as well. Randy, Randy. There you go. Morning, Nikita. Hi, Nikita. You always try and think about, in a way, like what they're experiencing from what you're doing in moving around them or being like in their space in a way that makes them feel as, as comfortable and easy as possible. Helen stays vigilant as she's feeding. These dogs have to be in tip-top shape to compete and Helen respects them as athletes, not pets. The relationship between a musher and their dogs is extremely important. Above all, they have to be able to trust each other in a 650-kilometre race over some of the toughest terrain in the world, musher and dogs must form a single pack. She must be part of theirs, and they 
heart of hers. Come on. Yo, Nikita. But what's striking about seeing Helen with the dogs is this visceral connection. Most of it is unsaid, but it's physical, mental, on some level, almost spiritual. It's the marriage of all of those things together that creates this kind of perfection that you can't help but be moved by. Sometimes you feel it really strongly because it's so windy that your sled is almost tipping over and you can see the dogs being pushed sideways, you know, down a slope or something like that. And then you watch them, like, keep going, keep going, keep going. You give them some encouraging words and then they, you know, maybe when you tell them that they're doing a good job, maybe they speed up a little bit, you know, they get, they get even more into it because, because they know that you're, like, behind them. And I think um, also at times like that, I mean, it's really like all the other feelings are kind of shitty. You can still get that kind of that kind of glorious moment of feeling like you're so enraptured by what they are doing, and you know that they're doing it like for you. Um, and it's such a beautiful kind of symbiosis, or whatever, or such a beautiful kind of exchange that that can also give you that sort of, yeah, that really, really, that special feeling that's like something beyond yourself. Because you see uh, how giving the dogs are of themselves to to you. 2.30 in the afternoon and the light of the day is already struggling. It's Helen's last training session before she leaves the haven of her camp and heads into battle in Rorosh. She's assembling her sled, the purpose of this run is to make the dogs feel good, make them happy, comfortable, prepared for what's to come. So it's not a long trip, but Helen wants her dogs in peak condition at the start line. Fresh snow fell overnight, there's probably three or four feet of it resting over the landscape here, and the sound of snow is everywhere, with every move you make. From the front of the sled are two long red lines with metal buckles. They're called the gang lines, and the dogs will be clipped onto these two by two, ready to start pulling. So the dogs like run two, two by two, and, um, and so each section has two, two dogs. At the back of each section there's these ropes, and the ropes attach to the back of the dog's harnesses. And then at the front, you have necklines, and the necklines attach to the dog's collars. So the dogs run between those two things in, in a section. In effect, this means that the huskies aren't pulling from the front of their bodies like a dog on a leash, for example. They're pulling with their entire midsection, and this harnesses their power. Generally, they'll sit there pretty calm, pretty chill, if you do anything that indicates that it might be actually like really time to go, like if I were to put my parker on or something, then they'll go nuts. All the dogs are now clipped on and rearing to go. She says one final thing to us before she pulls up the snow anchor and disappears into a frozen white desert for as far as the eye can see. Uh, run goes out. Uh, if you wait a minute, the whole yard will help.
Mushers say the main pack will do this for the group as solidarity, but also to remind the group of where they are, of where to return to. We leave for Rorosh in the morning, and while Helen is out on her training run, her handler is loading a breathtaking amount of gear onto the trucks that will form the convoy travelling tomorrow. Her name is Rebecca, and she's travelled from London to help Helen through the race. So much stuff. Like, we've got... Pedder's got his truck, and then we've got the trailer, so it'll be the front and the back, and then you're taking some stuff for us as well for the cabin, which is good. So we've got our stuff, we've got enough food for the dogs for the whole time we're there, enough food for us. Um, The dogs, like, coats, the dogs' T-shirt, their booties, there's batteries... Um, there's just more things than you can ever imagine because it's kind of like going to space like you can't just run and get something if you forgot it you need to have everything with you like all the time Helen's back from her training run it's dark now and the temperature has plummeted again to 18 below and that's that's okay she puts all the dogs back in their kennels feeds and waters them and now they'll have full rest until the race begins whilst the dogs are sleeping Helen helps to load the trucks. We'll be leaving at six in the morning. Helen should now be resting herself. Instead, she and her boss, Petter, are sitting around the warm farmhouse kitchen table and finalising tactics. And that's why I say it, that it's better to take it a little bit shorter after... So Which dogs to pick, how much ground to cover in one run, where to stop... Weather conditions, sleep, food. Again, that's another thing to do. Like, if you feel that, okay, this was long, this was heavy going to serve all... The mind-boggling logistics of sledding for 650 kilometres, day and night, through a frozen wilderness. Then you go, you, you go past and you, take, you can make the rest four hours instead. Instead of taking this hour on the trail, then you can, you can keep going. Somehow, anyway, that gets you into... Do you have a place past the Volan that that you know of? The team of dogs that Helen will race has been picked. Lily, Kira, Hugo, Fred, Peso, Kiara, Robin, Gaga, Hadia, Grey, Yatsi and Randy. Mushed by this relative newcomer racing under an Irish flag, few in the husky racing world will expect this team to finish the famed Lopet. Helen's chosen team are a mix of experience and youth. Some have raced Feynman Lopet before, some have never competitively raced. In choosing the dogs for her race team, Helen needs leaders and followers. Dogs that will stay on track, both mentally and physically. And dogs that will urge the others to keep going. They'll all have to work at a steady, combined pace, all in tune with each other. No, but after that you come down to a valley where there is a river with some... Water. So it, oh, okay. it, it depends if it's cold. Is that often open, that, that place? Where are you? It's the day of the transfer. Schlussfors in Sweden to Rorosh in Norway. We pull out the long driveway with huge drifts of snow on either side. The road ahead, at least 18 hours of it, through rural Sweden and Norway, is frozen hard. Without jagged winter tyres, you'd never make it. The dogs are in a large trailer full of dry straw, two to each compartment, for company and warmth. Regular stops make sure they're stretched, well-fed and watered. The journey seems never-ending. Snow banked eight and ten feet high on the sides of the small roads, 
occasionally clearing to reveal groups of elk and reindeer set against a crystal blue sky. We get a stunning northern sunset, then utter blackness for mile after mile, and finally a sign for Rorosh. It's 3am on Thursday the 31st of January. Helen's ordeal begins in 32 hours. Friday morning at 11.40. We arrive to a campsite outside the town, crash to sleep for a few hours and rise the next morning to grab our accreditation and go to a mandatory mutters meeting at a hall in this tiny but unfeasibly beautiful hamlet. The Disney film Frozen was set here. The main characters, down to the eccentric reindeer Sven, are real and still live here. Yes, yes, there's bags on the checkpoint, yes. However, the mushers' meeting is anything but a fairy story. The reality of the presentations, from the organisers to the chief vet, are sobering. So we need to worry about frostbites. This is a long race. One of my main concerns is dogs that lose weight rapidly. From one checkpoint to the next checkpoint, you can actually see they're getting thinner. In a mandatory checkpoint, we want to assess every dog. We will touch every dog. We will see to the mucous membrane. We will see them, the hydration status of it. We will listen to the heart. If the, We feel the pulse, and if you have any suspicions that we should listen to the heart or we see the respiration, that we should listen to the lungs, we do that. The meeting breaks up in what is palpable, nervous joviality. Take care of the dogs. <laughs> yeah? And ask a lot. Just, yes, don't be afraid of asking. Yes, we are there for you. In the car on the way back to the campsite, I ask Helen about nerves on the eve of the race. It's odd. When she's asked a question, she answers not for herself, but for her dogs. The team are good. They are, um, yeah, they're getting a a lot of rest, which is uh, really good. Like, some are drinking um, better than others, and some are, like, showing a little bit more stress than others. But they tend to be the younger ones that haven't done it before. It's kind of natural for the younger dogs that haven't seen this before uh, to be a bit kind of uh, confused or anxious or something at this at this kind of point. They're like relaxing into it. They're like, oh, okay, yeah, so we go, we sleep in the dog truck for a bit. Yeah, okay, she's going to give us some soup, like, fine, you know. Uh, so, yeah, so it's good. Helen grabs a few scant undisturbed hours sleep. We arrive in Rorosh the following morning, hours before her 11.40 start. Helen Milan, in her glasses, five foot one, competing for Ireland, is about to race the terrifying Feynman Lopez. Helen is number 37 in the race. As a surprise, Petter has given her his brand new sled. It's one of the best in the business. And Helen is suspicious. Partly probably because he doesn't want to like leave it out where it can be nicked or something. And so here we go, I've got the swishest sled in the fucking race. <laughs> there are teams of dogs everywhere, bewildering noise and a million things to think about. Mushers and their handlers look on edge. And there are regular sprints to the portaloos dotted around the start area. Helen wears a GPS tracker, partly so spectators can follow the competitors online as the race makes its way through the inaccessible parts of the course, which is most of it. Party so she can be found if the unthinkable happens. The GPS gadget is tricky to attach and nerves are fraying. This is the same as last year. I couldn't put the fucking thing on. It is awkward. Deciding I'm in the way, I head down to the start line itself. 
The noise is deafening and all the talk is of the route and the race stops. The names of these places are legendary in endurance sled racing. Some of them no more than a cabin on a hill. Tufsingdalen, Grevjo, Treesel, Savalen, Orkelboden, Talga. I grab a word with the first musher off. Yeah, I feel calm now. It's worse than the day before. But now, yes, now I started to feel really good in the stomach, so now, now it's okay. The next musher only wants to proudly say he's a local from Rorosh before being waved to the line. It's a weird call-out from the mushers, name-checking their own towns before going into war. And again, when I question these people, most of them will answer for their dogs. The answer to a question like, are you feeling good, will often be... They've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> Helen's been called to the line. 37, Helen Mullane, from Ireland. She sleds up and puts the snow anchor down. Okay. It's chaos. One of the dogs has lost an insulating boot. These boots are crucial. Like teeth guards, they prevent parts of the dog's bodies from literally freezing. Helen calls to one of her team, but Emil can't hear her over the noise. Emil! Emil! Emil, can you get him for me, please? The boot gets sorted. Twelve racing dogs straining at the gang lines to get going. And then, finally, they do. Yeah, yeah, okay. Helen, go, go, go! Helen Milan sleds up this chocolate box street in Rorosh. Thousands line it on either side, standing in front of wooden-built shops and houses with their beautiful snow-capped roofs. She passes the steeple of the little chapel where the race was blessed the night before. It would be the last gesture of warmth Helen would see for four days, because then she turns right and into 650 kilometres of wilderness at 20 degrees below. Apart from a few short interruptions, this will be the soundtrack to the next four days of Helen's life. The first stage is Rorosh to Tufsingdalen. It's 65 kilometres, and the dogs, being fresh, are doing anything up to 15 kilometres an hour. But this stop isn't mandatory, so Helen doesn't take it. She just sleds on through. She doesn't even notice we're there. She's huddled and focused on her team. Her other competitors are not the top priority. The race now is against herself. When she makes it a few miles through the stop, she's going to camp with the dogs in a makeshift tent in the snow. Unbuckle them, feed them their stew, inspect them all to see how they're holding up, bed them down with dry straw, and finally try to get a couple of hours rest herself. There's no shelter, and the cold, minus 19 degrees, is a real issue, more so for Helen. However, it's quiet and the dogs are less stressed with no one else around. So we have to wait for Helen in Drevjo the following day. It's the second stop, a mandatory veterinary check. It's the evening of the second day and already Helen and the dogs have done 130 kilometres of racing. However, they are achieving one of their two goals. They're still in the race with healthy dogs. 
Their other, rather fanciful goal of finishing in the top 20 is some ways off, but they are doing seriously well. 29th out of 40 teams who started. This stop is a frozen field with a tiny wooden community centre. There's nothing else here. It's getting dark and red torches mark her to her parking spot. The rules state you must build your own fire to boil the water to feed your dogs. Helen looks tired, but very focused. At the moment, I'm just, uh, I've been thinking about exactly how I'm going to try and do everything to make it, like, as efficient as possible. That's what I'm trying to do at the moment, is carry out my plan, going up and down the line without wasting journeys either way. Coats are put on the dogs. And I'm doing dog coats before straw, because otherwise they'll just lie down, and then it's impossible to get them to do anything, basically. I'm going to try and put dog coats on them, but they're just, like, already comfortable, so they don't want to get off, and it's really Randy, what's your problem, huh? The water is boiled, and the food is prepared. In Helen's case, it's a warm mixture of soup and meat. It's a stew, and the dogs love it. Mixing the meat. As the dinner is made the teams of dogs start calling to each other. I ask Helen how she is. I mean, I think they're all looking good. Everyone was eating snacks and everyone seems to be running well. And, uh, and then I wonder, what's the point? The only thing, you know, you try your best to, to make sure that no one you know, twist a wrist or an ankle or something, but that's always that's always what you're thinking about, I think, after a run that where it's a bit soft like that. Helen eventually grabs a few hours sleep, what would be her only ones indoors for the entire race, on a camp bed in the centre. The weather worsens suddenly as we drive to a farmhouse where we're staying. By 2am, when we arrive, we can't see any side of a road and leave the car where we think we might have a chance of getting it out in the morning. We do, and make our way to the small town of Treasel, where the stop is on a frozen river. Helen got up in the middle of the night and set off. She and her dogs are 218 kilometres into the race now, and she's welcomed by the marshal. Okay, welcome. Thank you. Welcome to Trusil, my home place. Hey, nice to meet you. You're Irish, I understand. Uh, Yes. Yes. It's so nice to have people from that area of the world. Uh Oh, cool. Uh, Yes, it's in the pocket. There's some bad news. Yatsi has had a sore shoulder and Helen took her into the bag on the sled during the night as they made their way to Treason. So, yeah, I mean, you can try with massage and we can make a recheck, but... There's a vet check, and it confirms Helen's worst fears. I think shoulder is not... I think I want to. I think I would just rather have her in resting and warm, you know. The vet offers to come back and recheck after some massage, but it's Yahtzee's shoulder, crucial to racing dogs, and Helen knows... Jatsi's race is wrong. I will feed her with the others, I think, and then um, and then I will give her to my handlers. Helen's team come and pick up Yatsi and bring her to the warmth of the van for some dry straw and warm food. Helen pushes on 
and on and on. 260 kilometres and two days and nights further, only to be welcomed into the jaws of what she doesn't know yet would be the beginning of a nightmare section of this ordeal. The trail to Orkelbogen, 490 kilometres into the race. It's 1am and we're waiting for Helen. We know she's still going because we can see from the website that her GPS tracker is still moving. Helen has already turned heads by getting this far. There have been a number of retirements from the Feyman by this point, including mutters and teams with far more experience. However, the problem here is the cold. I could barely access this place because it's on top of a hill and the car could only just get around the snowdrifts, which worsened as I climbed. The car was showing me minus 22 degrees as I got out of it, but it's the wind shear on top of this hill that's the real killer. Hungry, sleep deprivations, all that is coming straight in your face. I get talking to Troon. He's the race organiser, a former winner of Feymund, and the former trainer of the Muttert who's leading it this year. Troon doesn't look like he's made from flesh and bones. He looks like he's hewn from granite. The special thing about dog races, comparing to many, many other sports, is that we're travelling so, so big distance outside. It's totally impossible to predict how everything is going to end, so... Just what you got in the sled bag and all the equipment and the gear and all that, but you need to be well prepared mentally. There's a thousand things that could happen. Everything is going fine, and then you take a wrong turn. Everything is going fine, then you have one meter of soft snow in the, and so it's coming, a storm coming up. And when everything is 100%, then the sled breaks into pieces. You need to have an extremely mental endurance, and you need to deal with the unpredictable all the time. And you got to deal with this when you're very tired. To say it easy, stubborn as hell. The best measures are always have a tough life. And uh, this race is, is that uh, if, you don't, if you're not a character and you start in a race like this, you definitely are when you compete it. Yeah, it's true. That's why it must be so nice. So uh, your Irish girl is doing so well, I think. Huh? Aren't you agree? <laughs> it's 2 a.m. It's getting palpably colder now. I overhear the vets talking about the cold and others saying that many will give up on the race tonight. One of the marshals checks the temperature. It's 27 degrees below. From the woods at the side of the clearing we're in, a team of dogs appears. They're putting a small, huddled figure in a red jacket on a sled behind them. It's Helen. As I approach her, the clips on the harnesses of the gang line have frozen shut, and she's trying to knock the ice off them. I ask her about one of the dogs, but she doesn't seem to be aware I'm there. Was there a problem with Randy? I didn't know that it had gotten so cold. Yeah, I mean, I could tell on the sled, like, that I was really, really feeling it, like, feeling really, really bad. But, uh, yeah, I just thought it was because I was too tired and it was making me feel the cold too much. If I'd known that it was actually minus 27, I would have done some slightly different things. Oh, I would have put some dog coats on them and I would have put booties on everybody. She still has 11 of her 12 dogs, an incredible achievement. But a gastric bug is running through the entire race 
and the dogs and all the teams are dropping quickly. Yeah, I don't think I will leave with all of them though. I feel happy that I got them this far though. But I mean, this, uh, this diarrhea, it's just fucked everyone up completely. I don't know what I could have done about it really. Helen has one final ordeal ahead of her. She has to get herself in these conditions from Orkelbogen through the mountains to an even higher place called Talga. If she can make it that far, she'll then have a final descent from the hills to Rorosh and the finish line. The next time I see Helen, she'll have either retired from or she'll have finished the Feyman Lopet, a feat very few believed she could have accomplished. I get back to Rorosh in the morning light and the warmth of my guesthouse bed. It's now Monday at 11am. Helen has been going for 72 hours, pretty much solid. I'm sitting in a cafe 300 metres from the line and I feel guilty I'm so comfortable. The winner, the mighty Thomas Warner, finished at 7am this morning in a time of two days and 20 hours and he's about to be joined by many of the other teams. As the day goes on, I check on Helen's progress. She's moving very slowly, but very surely. She's 24th. For a moment, I dream that Helen can pull off a miracle, leapfrog a bunch of teams, and not only finish, but make the top 20. However, as the light begins to fade, there's more bad news. The wind has come up on top of the mountain, and the teams are now racing through a blizzard. The talk by midnight is that no other teams will make it to the end, including the ones already finished, only 22 teams are now left in a race of 40. If there's any doubt about how tough this thing is, it's right there. Only half of those who started are now still standing. Now the GPS system goes down. I have no idea where Helen is. The last I heard, she was on top of a mountain in Norway, in a blizzard, lying 21st in one of the most hellish races on earth. I decide to head down to the finish, a local football pitch, at the time that I expected her in, around 4am. I'm the only one there, or so I think. Then the zipper opens in a tent beside the line. The announcers and a few marshals are in there, around a fire pit, drinking something that looks warm and, I must say, very inviting. I ask about Helen and the other teams. There's no information, but they tell me that 18 teams have now finished. The hours go by and nothing. I sit on the bleachers and just stare into the dark path where the teams would approach from. Four teams are still out there somewhere. It's 5.30am and it starts with an almost inaudible clinking sound from the dark at the other side of the stadium. Then, is it dogs breathing? Under one of the dim floodlights over the running track which surrounds the pitch, there's a flash of a team of dogs and a musher. I don't have to look twice. Outrageously, it's Helen Milan. The announcer scrambles out of his tent. It doesn't matter if it's five in the morning, he says to me. We must make this special. He turns up the music on the tannoy, cranks up his microphone and calls Helen in around the running track at the edge of the pitch. Helen Milan, that's the musher we are waiting for. She has been uh, 
The announcer's shout-out says it all. She left last Friday at 11am. It's now Tuesday at almost 6 in the morning. Helen has been grinding through this bitter wilderness for 90 hours. We don't know it yet, but the teams ahead of Helen got stuck in drifts on top of the mountain. As the blizzard raged, she took a different route, but was light enough to sled across the top of the heavy snowfalls and avoid getting driven into the middle of them. Helen is going to finish in the top 20 of the race. Welcome to the Ross. Helen, the only mercer from uh, Ireland. It's now... Helen and her dogs cross the finish line. It's the first we hear of what's happened over the previous 12 hours. Do you meet some other uh, mercers? I passed three teams. Uh, I think they tried to follow me, but I uh, don't know if it worked. I had to keep going because they were going to stop, so... And we finally catch up with an exhausted-looking Irish husky musher and her nine remaining dogs. That was a tough, really tough run. Tough and really long. Because it's all, like, very, very much uphill. And it was a very tough run for them. I mean, I'm so proud that they got through and everything. But, like, I feel very over-emotional in this moment. <laughs> so nine troopers, eh? Yeah, totally. They're amazing. Sorry. <laughs> Each and every dog gets a kiss. Hi, you cute. Hey, Hugo. Hey, Hugo. All right, I'm going to give them a snack right now. I have some snacks left. Helen looks stunned and exhausted. I haven't said anything yet, but she still hasn't asked where she's come in the race. Great bunch of lads. Um, but yeah, it's mental. So we passed three teams on the trail. Hey, I wonder what um, what number I've come in. Sign here. Yeah, sure. What um, place am I? Thank you. Am I nineteenth? Yeah. I'm in the top twenty. Yeah. We're kids. <laughs> yeah, get in. <laughs> and even to have finished the race when so many people scratched it is feels really good. Nineteenth. Uh, <laughs> Yatsi, Gray and Randy didn't make it to the end A combination of a bug and a niggling injury put pay to that But Helen wants to roll call the dogs who did Kira and Hugo And then we have Lily And we have Gaga And we have Robin And we have Halia And we have Kiara And we have Fred And we have Peso they're the ones that finished. And then she does something I've been waiting for her to do. She actually mentions her own needs and receives her grand prize. A beer, a flapjack, and of course, the glory. The glory, that is, of surviving the horrible, the attritional, the unforgiving, famed Lopet. Yeah, I'm very proud. I'm feeling very proud right now. I'm very proud. I'm very hungry, actually. Oh, thank you very much.
You've been listening to The Long Run from the documentary on one. Narrated by Donal O'Hurley, the idea was brought to us by Emma Gilbert and the documentary was produced by Donal O'Hurley and Liam O'Brien. Since Helen Milan completed the fame and Loped, she continues to live in Sweden and sled dogs with Petter Carlson. Helen has also since published a critically acclaimed folk horror graphic novel entitled Nick Nevin and the Bloody Queen, and it's out now. Until next time, thanks for listening.